You are now listening to What the Health, a podcast dedicated to helping you navigate your way to better health. Hello, everybody, and welcome to What the Health. I'm your host, Lena Lahire. When you hear the word research, what kind of things do you think about? I think of terms like scientific method, peer-reviewed studies, double-blind procedures, statistics, standard deviations, or the line of best fit. While all of these are components of research, there is so much more that research can go into. Here to talk about different methods of research is our special guest, Dr. Adam T. Murray. Dr. Murray is an assistant professor of Indigenous psychology at the University of Calgary, where he teaches an undergraduate course in qualitative research methods. He is a mixed methodologist by training, specializing in the integration of quantitative and qualitative methods. He currently has several mixed method projects underway on a range of topics, including evaluating undergraduate research training programs, and Indigenous mentorship, allyship, employment experiences, and health research networks. Adam enjoys hanging out with his family, playing music, and training jujitsu. I am honored to have him on the podcast and know that you guys are going to get so much out of this episode. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. So to start, why don't you tell our listeners how you got into psychology as a career. What made you choose psychology? Oh, man. Uh, I want to be careful because I could tell the long version or I could tell the longer version. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, I kind of took a, a bunch of sideways uh, tracks um, to get uh, into psychology. It uh, wasn't... Um, my initial like job choice. Uh, I was supposed to be a roofing contractor. My old man, he was a, a roofing contractor and had his own business and I was supposed to take that over and I worked roofing uh, on and off. It wasn't full time for 14 years, but it was on and off for 14 years. I also worked at uh, um, UPS for 10 years uh, and that's you know uh, happening at the same time. So there's overlap there. And uh, I was also going to school. So it was, it was a lot of, a lot of uh, real busy times, um, but I, I hadn't uh, intended to get into psychology at first. I, I got into psychology at, as um, as a mistake, actually. Uh, I, uh, I started off as a theology major uh, and then moved into philosophy, uh, partly because the freedom to ask questions wasn't available, at least not at the school that I was going to within the field of psychology like I needed. Uh, so I went to philosophy and that was cool, but um, I think that it also kind of had its limits. One of them for me personally at the time was that it was very judgmental of religion. And uh, even though um, I was kind of uh, skirting the, the boundary uh, there, I, uh, I still had a lot of positive experiences, really healthy experiences within that context. And so I, I didn't need the judgment. <laughs> I was looking for something that helped me understand, not just whether or not it was true or false type of deal. Mm. And I took this class in anthropology uh, and they said uh, that one of the things they, they, first off, they were cool with religion and they talked about how it could go well or not well. 
Uh, but one of the things it talked about was the psychosocial functions of religion, psychosocial. So I thought, oh, psychosocial, that's what I want to do. So I got into, uh, when I moved from community college to four-year university, I changed my major from philosophy over to psychology. And originally I thought I had made a mistake. I was like, oh, what is this? Uh, because, you know, I, I went from having questions about like God, to questions about truth, to questions about culture. And all of these things are real big questions. Uh, they're, they're, they're real like uh, um, either like worldview, implicit for your worldview, um, but, but they're also talking about systems and, and the role of our race and, and uh, uh, you know, the role of our place in the universe. I mean, there's, there's so many things that, that those fields talk about. And in psychology, it seemed very microscopic. Um, you know, how many times do you blink your eyes if, if uh, you're asked to give contradictory information or, or how many uh, random words can you memorize in a row? Uh, or how many, like what your score was on some, what your average score was across some subset of five questions and, and how that was similar or different than everyone else who'd taken that thing. And I just like, I was like, I just confused. Like I just didn't understand it. And uh, I, I took a bunch of electives in other fields. And then I took this culture and psychology class. And uh, by that point, like I had been reading so much about culture and religion and all this stuff, history, languages, um, that when I wrote my paper for that class, like I was taking it super serious. You know? And I turned in, uh, uh, I turned it in and, and the professor, uh, um, he had this, his name was Kevin Whitehead. He was from South Africa. He was just an adjunct at the time, but he had this huge influence on me. Uh, at the end of the semester, when he gave you back your paper, he'd also explain why he gave you the grade that he gave you, which I thought was cool. Um, but uh, he said, look, this paper is like graduate level work. You should think about getting the research. And I was like, nah, man, I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to work in like a blue collar field. Like I'm just here to find answers. Like I'm not trying to make this like a job or nothing. You got me confused with the wrong guy. And he said, well, listen, he goes, there's this program and I, I'm really recommending that you apply to it. And it's a two year commitment. So you'd have to add a year to your graduation but it's like a 90% acceptance rates into graduate school afterwards. It's really intense. It's well-funded. And, uh, and because of him, like I, I was, I, I applied, it was like the last day I was like, well, I'm just going to throw it in there. And I ended up getting accepted into this program. And for two years, I, I had like this intensive research training, uh, both quantitative and qualitative methods. Luckily, uh, the lady that her name is Dr. Carrie Sadermo, uh, the professor, she, uh, um, was also trained in mixed methods. And so it was great uh, to get like early training right from the bat. You know, an undergraduate research course, I tell everybody in 415, I'm sure you remember, yeah. uh, I, in the first day of class, I talk about how unique it is to have an undergraduate research course, one, in psychology at all, uh, two, at the undergraduate level, and three, with a, a lab component. Because um, you, you don't, there's just very rare you usually only see that type of prioritization with quantitative methods. Mm -hmm. um, because of that two-year program that was funded by the National Institutes of Mental Health, it was called CORE, uh, Career Opportunities in Research, I think it was uh, what it stood for. And, um, and because of like the credentials I got from that program, I also did a summer internship, uh, research internship at UCLA one at UC Irvine and then another one for the state of California. And so like, I just, those two years were just hectic, like 
overwhelmingly hectic and I was working nights and I was helping my dad roofing and I was trying to be a good dad and all kinds of stuff. So I was dying, <laughs> wow. but, but I, I got intense training and I mean, totally like the creator just looking out for me. As soon as I started that first program, the, the two year one I was telling you about, I was talking with a family friend uh, on, that lives on reserve uh, uh, in the state next to mine in Arizona. And uh, um, I called him, I called him because I wanted advice for a paper I was writing on burden baskets for a class. And I wanted to ask him about how they're still used. And, and then we got to talking about other stuff. And um, I told him, I said, hey man, you know, I'm feeling pretty disconnected. I grew up here in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, there's just not a whole lot of other people uh, like me there, or there's not a lot of other native folks around, like they're, they're around, but they're hard to find. There's 7 million people there, right? Mm -hmm. I said, what's it like uh, growing up on the res, you know? Uh, and he's for young guys like me. And he goes, oh, you know, right now it's not good. Uh, and I said, why, what's going on? And uh, he said, we're getting hit real hard uh, with uh, methamphetamine. Now, if you recall your history of methamphetamine, amphetamine's been around since World War II, um, but methamphetamine or crystal meth wasn't innovated uh, until the 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, it would, it required um, using like this, like industrial fertilizer was like this chemical uh, that you could, if you cooked it with a certain temperature, it would extract the penifrin or norepinephrine and then freeze in a, this sheet, this crystal sheet on top. And it was, that chemical was heavily regulated in the States, but it wasn't in Mexico. So they, they were able to, um, you could just put up a sign that said like, you know, Mike's, uh, or, uh, you know, Jorge's fertilizer plant and start ordering that stuff. So a bunch of it was coming over the border and the tribes in the Southwest were getting hit real hard because they, they, there was a whole intersection of different reasons I won't go into uh, that made them particularly success, uh, susceptible. But anyways, he said, man, we're trying to apply uh, to grant for grant funding to support programs to fight the drug and the, uh, the government doesn't believe that we have a problem because we have no data. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shoot. And I was like, well, look, man, I go, this is crazy. It's like, but I just got into this program like two weeks ago. And I have like, I have to do a research project. I have a bunch of funding to use. I go, would it be mutually beneficial if I'd have to write a paper? But, you know, would it work out for you if, uh, if like we collected that data, like we could do that. And he's like, well, let me introduce you to some people. So I got into that and I still work with them. Uh, but that was a two year long project. And uh, after I graduated, like I said, I had all the, like super intense work life non-balance uh, for that, those, that period. Mm -hmm. So when I graduated, I actually took a little bit of time off and um, I had intended to just become a driver at UPS. Like, I don't, I don't mean to say just, I mean, like, that's what I, I thought that's a great job. And in the U S it's one of the few, um, like American jobs left where like you can make 90 grand a year, all you and all your family, all you and all your 10 kids are covered with health, vision, dental, pay prescription, health benefits. You get a pension, you get, you know, weeks accrued for vacation, you get overtime. You get, there's so many things you get the grievance leave. If, if someone in your family passes, 
uh, and you don't, and you can do that with a 10th grade education. Like it's, it, there's just not, uh, wow, wow. yeah, yeah. It's like, that, that's that old school, like American company like that. Cause, uh, um, the longer that you stay with them, the more loyal you are to them, the more they take care of you forever. Right. That's the idea. Mm. Uh, and so that was my plan. Um, and, uh, you know, um, there was a few different things that were kind of pushing me, um, a couple of, not, well, most of the folks in my, like, in my friend network, my family network, like, didn't go to college, and so I didn't have any pressure to, like, keep going. People didn't really understand why I was going anyways, but when, uh, when I, I was, I was making excuses a lot. Oh, sorry, I can't go to that thing. No, I can't hang out. I got to do this research. So if I have to do this class, I have to, right? So everyone, like, was inconvenienced by it a little bit, and so when I wasn't going back to school, everyone was like, hey, man, a couple of people were like, hey, man, weren't you like on your way to go do stuff? What happened to that? Like, <laughs> what about graduate school? Are you going to do that or not? And I was like, oh man, ah. like, you know, you don't understand that school uh, experience, man. I go, it steals from your soul. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I, I was like, I couldn't just go back and, and have no reason. Uh, I had to like, it's a, it took me three years. Um, to where like I got uncomfortable enough, I started getting bored enough. Uh, people were putting it in my ear, um, and uh, and I started. There were a couple of managers that got hired that were just knuckleheads, and you know something about just like <laughs> like I'm gonna have to work for these people for the rest of my life. Like at this point, I'm overqualified. You know, like I was just like I just don't know. Like I I could tell you a story maybe on a different uh, occasion of just uh, uh, this time where this lower level management had made this decision to go one way and it was a horrible idea. And I went and I told the upper management, I said, listen, this is, I don't mean any disrespect to anybody, but this is why these two things, this, this plan's not gonna work and why my plan works better. And if you want to, we can collect data on it. And I just got trained on how to analyze it for two years. So let's, let's collect the data. Me and my team will do your way as hard as we can. We'll do my way as hard as we can. We'll see which one works better. And they both, like just looked at each other and said thanks and then sent me away and then we did their plan you know it was like oh man come on you know <laughs> so uh anyway i started getting like hungry to to do something and uh i i thought well where am i happiest you know and i thought man when i was working on the res like i was happiest there that was that was good i felt real good um because academia it there's there's some folks that are just good fit, right? Like their personality is such, their IQ is such, their organizational patterns are such. There's a, there's a handful of people on both sides of them that can learn to do a lot of those things. Um, but uh, it, is a, it is a place like with its own rules and its own climate and its own uh, like culture. And it's, uh, um, I don't know, it's, it's just not for everybody. And so for me, like I had to have uh, like a reason that convinced me, like, cause I knew at some point, you know, I was gonna hate it, you know, it's like, uh, especially like during your comps when you're a PhD, you know, it's, uh, uh, there's just these, these uh, hurdles that really like strip you down to, you just feel like, why am I here? Or, Man, I'm not good enough for this. Like you start going through, I don't belong here. You start like just going through all these things. And so when you go to that dark place, you have to have a reason. No, 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 I'm here for this. Like, so that it keeps you through there. And, um, 
anyways, so that's when I went back to, um, I, was, I had already had my bachelor's in psychology. At that point, I had seen the potency, the power of research uh, to, to do things. I was, I was pretty good at it. So I was like, well, hey, look, you know, this is a way that I can contribute to things that I care about. Uh, you know, it doesn't require like any like identity politics or posturing. Like if, if people, if I'm useful for something, then people will have me around. If I'm not, then they won't. And that's pretty like a, you know, easy criteria or whatever. I, I can accept it. So I, uh, I got, um, uh, I got accepted to a, like four or five different PhD programs, but um, all related to indigenous research stuff, but most of them were on health or substance use uh, because of my background. And I really didn't want to go down that, that, that road again. Uh, I really appreciate and respect the folks that are in those fields. Um, but for me, it was a hard field uh, because, I mean, some topics were close to home and you just focus on a lot of negativity. Like if you look at drug use, you have to look at all the predictors of drug use. And, and it's a lot of, you know, shitty things in life. Yeah. Uh, yeah so I wanted topic. to. Huh? That's a hard topic. Yeah. 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 And and so I, what kept me out of a lot of uh, trouble, because I grew up in Los Angeles in this uh, this area that had a lot of drugs in, in and like violent crime. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you're gonna pick one, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, uh, yeah, you have to like, there's not very many options for things like to excel at. Uh, and one of the things that kept me out of uh, a lot of trouble was that I worked roofing. Uh, and so like I had this, I don't know what to call it, like this job that made me feel like a cool young man. Yeah. Uh, I got paid in cash, like it was a concrete skill uh, not no disrespect to anybody in the like like retail or, or restaurant uh, stuff but um, or food service stuff uh, but like if 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 I needed a ride to work for a month and I was like look I'll, I'll fix that leak in your mom's roof right like that's a good trade you know? real. <laughs> so I uh, I thought well I want to get on that I'll, I think that if some some of the you know some of these uh, reserves uh, the unemployment rates, like unreal mm -hmm. uh, and it's one of the slowest areas for progress uh, of all the other areas. I don't know why that, that I don't know why that is. Um, Australia has taken a different approach to uh, supporting entrepreneurial programs, but it, it just seems like uh, there's way more investment on health stuff and education stuff, um, social work stuff than there is in the creating financial independence stuff. Mm. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to, to get into that. And so one of the programs I had gotten accepted to was in industrial organizational psychology. And the advisor, uh, who is a half uh, indigenous guy, uh, half black guy, his name is Dr. Keith James. Um, he was uh, doing research, like his PhD is not in industrial organizational psychology, but he was in that track within the department uh, because he did organizational research. I think it was his was in organizational behavior, which is very similar. But uh, uh, he had like five streams of research. So he had like creativity and diversity and leadership and um, security. And then he had this one st stream of research on indigenous community development and it included an economic development component. So uh, whatever degree, whatever track that your advisor's in, that's the, usually the track that you have to be in. And so uh, that's how I ended up in industrial organizational psychology. My PhD is actually in applied psychology. 
but uh, you had a major and a minor in something. And so my major was in industrial organizational and my minor was in methods. And I continued my methods training in graduate school too. If you look at my transcripts, <laughs> uh, it, I took two classes in, in my major in industrial organizational psychology. One was organizational psych, one was iPsych, and then everything else is methods classes. Uh, because that's what I, 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 you know, I knew what I was there to get. So that I, when I came back out, I thought, oh, now I can, you know, serve different. Um, and in the beginning, I thought it was just gonna be like tribal agencies, but then I realized that so much work happens like at the nonprofit level mm. and like city services that uh, it, that was a good fit for me. So that became like more of an organizational um, like mindset. Um, I did do my comprehensive exams and, and I passed. So I, I did like read hundreds of articles. Like I, I do know the field uh, pretty good, but it just, as, you know, I was just throwing my coursework out there as a reflection of my prioritization on methods. Uh, and so it was a little bit of an accidental, accidental thing. Like I didn't intend to go to into industrial organizational psych uh, but really it was a happy accident. Like it's afforded me like, like so many advantages in my perspective, uh, because it's a language, uh, that like organizational people, like organizational it, folks understand. Uh, and so it helps me to communicate on, uh, on a very practical level. And they also have like a really, really high standard for uh, research because um, a lot of their work is not for the cause. A lot of their work is for business clients. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's not like, well, whoever's the best that's willing to contribute will take them. It's more like you better be the best or you're fired. Uh, and so there's a different dynamic. Um, you know, if, if someone spent a million bucks uh, implementing some program that you developed and they, you know, I don't know, implemented it in like 10 states or something, and it costed a whole bunch of money over the course of the year and it didn't work. And they said, Hey, how come it didn't work? And you said, well, maybe our psychometrics were out of whack. They would say, well, why didn't you know about those things ahead of time? Like, get out of here. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so they're very heavily quantitative. Uh, but you know, I think of just a real, uh, like high standard of rigor, which I appreciate. And it's not to say that all the other fields of psychology don't have that standard. But like I've never heard people bicker over psychometrics as much as I have in the IO psychology. Like like the folks are, uh, like the scale development piece. Um, it's just it's just a hot topic. Like it's a, it's such a, a fundamental. And when you think about it, it's like if you're going to build a house with a bunch of bricks, and each brick, let's say, is is the finding from one study. Uh, you would want those bricks to be as solid as possible. Right, and so every scale that you use, that's providing, um, that's providing the data that you're going to make inferences about. You're going to say, well, this thing is related to this thing, based off of these measurements. And so, if the measurements are crap, then what do you, you know, what is it that we're really talking about here? So it's, I think that it's, it's important. But there are times where psychometrics can be, um, like a hindrance uh, to trying to figure out something because, like in small samples, they at least with indigenous populations, there's not a lot of validated scales that have been done within that population. So you either misappropriately apply averages and standard deviations from someplace else, or you assume construct uh, equivalents. And both of those things are tricky. Let's, you know, for the majority of our listeners, these uh, are our big words. 
So let's yeah, yeah. unpack some of these words. What do you mean when you say quantitative and qualitative? Can you just briefly explain what both of those are just so it gives our listeners some context? Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, the, uh, probably like the, the simplest, but in a lot of ways, the most accurate is just to think words or numbers. Mm -hmm. So the qualitative is the words and the quantitative is the numbers. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, you, you know, numbers can come from all different kinds of places. Um, and so when we say quantitative, um, we act, we're actually meaning uh, a couple of different things. And so the data can be qualitative and then you can convert that into quantitative data. And then you apply statistical analyses to make inferences about that data. Right. And different, there's so many different, so methods is, is more like a universe than it is like a subfield mm -hmm. uh, because uh, there's camps and they do their own things. They're all methods, they're all ways of investigating a, a problem. And so this is something that we should probably define too, because <clears throat> we throw this word research around uh, so much and everybody says like, oh, research says, and research says this, right? And, and it's easy to, to, for that word to get diluted. Because mm -hmm. um, research is a lot of different things. It's a human activity, right? So, uh, and it's more complicated than bowling. So, you know, <laughs> I can't just say research like I can say bowling and we know what we're talking about. Research is, is, is so there's research that like you or I might do. Um, and when you think about research that way, uh, it's just a fancy word for an information creation mechanism. So it's something that you're doing to create some information. Is it the only way to create information? Of course it's not, right? Uh, you can create information lots of different ways. Research, um, what, what they're, the folks that are developing research methods are trying to do are to create processes of um, creating information that are reducing human error to the extent possible and measurement error to the extent possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, our idea and so this is where we'll start getting into the philosophical stuff um, um, in terms of uh, what type, what, what's your view of reality and how do we best access it? And depending on your view of reality, different research methods make more sense than others. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and this is that whole like positivism and social constructivism thing. Yeah, that was my next question. If you could explain those two terms or perfectly going exactly where I was hoping. Uh -huh. Oh, good deal. Um, all right, well, let me, let me finish that thing on research first because there's, there's research that you and I would do, but then there's also research as like a, a national activity. And so sometimes we mean that, right? Research is a national activity. If you look at most research on most college campuses, uh, it's funded um, the, by government funds. Mm. And so the government doesn't fund research just for fun or just for knowledge sake. It funds research because it, it helps to address problems in society. Mm -hmm. At least you hope that it's doing that uh, because it's trying to create information about that thing. Now, when you're spending taxpayers' dollars and 
it's high stakes environments. Like it, it's the matter of like life and death for some portion of the population. And this could be like research on seatbelts, right? Uh, if this was, if there's something that's that's important that's at stake, you don't want just some jerk spouting off his opinion because he heard it from his uncle or something. Like you want information that went through a systematic process. So that if I said, how do you know that thing that you say uh, that you know, that you could say, well, look, at this is the steps that I took. Does it seem logical? And if they're like, mm, no, it doesn't. Then you have to fix those steps. And if you say, oh, it does, then okay, well then let's keep that. And that's how research has accumulated methods over time. Mm. So when you, when you look at like our T-tests and stuff, which are just statistical um, tests for making inferences, um, those were born in agriculture. So you'd have like two plots of, or however many plots of, uh, of whatever you were growing. And you'd say, well, look, I wanna do something a little bit different but I want to make sure before it's more expensive before I do that, I want to make sure that it's going to yield more than I would expect to happen from just chance. And, uh, and so, well, here, I'll do it to half of the field and the other half of the field I won't do it to, and then I'll compare them. Mm -hmm. And then I'll allow for a certain percentage of fluctuation to happen because that's real life. And then uh, if it's beyond what I would expect from natural fluctuation, then I'm going to say, it's worth it or it's 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 big enough of a difference for me right so that's kind of like the where some of these statistics things have evolved from and they're much more complicated now but all statistics really fall into one or two groups you're either comparing things comparing people comparing schools comparing hospitals comparing states whatever uh, comparing a group of people to themselves earlier <laughs> or you're predicting something like you're looking at a at a whether or not if, if this thing goes up, this thing goes up also, or if this thing goes down and this thing goes down, you're, you know, like a linear relationship or, or, or lots of different types of relationships, but you're either predicting or you're comparing. And as, as fancy as the stats get, those are, that's like the two things that, uh, uh, that they're doing. There's a couple of exceptions like factor analysis, but, but uh, anyway, I digress. Then there's also uh, like private research. So like giant corporations, they all have R and D departments, right? And those, uh, are not beholden to like ethics and they're spending their own money. So they don't have to be transparent. It's a different entity all to itself. And there's really awesome research that happens like that. I mean, because they hire folks like in my field mm -hmm. uh, and, and biologists and chemists and physics, and right? they hire all those folks uh, and private going into private industry usually pays more than academia. Um, you know, but there's, there, it's, it's radically different. It's only meant to serve the organization uh, you know, they can, they can choose to only publish positive results about their product. Like it's a different beast. Yeah. So you got research like the small R that, that we're, that you and I might do. And then there's these industries like the, the national one and the private one. And then the non-sec nonprofit has a, a small, uh, contribution to, uh, they would have more, but research is expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, uh, these are, uh, uh, when we talk about, you know, research methods, uh, real quickly, like, it should become apparent that it's complicated. There's a lot of things that are going on. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, people, are, uh, I hear people like feel disenfranchised by research because they'll be like, last week they said it was okay to eat eggs. And, and this week it says it's not, you know, and it's like, I don't know what to say about that stuff. I don't study eggs. Uh, you know, but uh, I know that for my field, 
in, in, in nutrition research, like that's one of the, that's mixed up with private industry. Um, it's also like a correlational study where they'll evaluate a whole population and they'll say, okay, who has more higher likelihood for heart disease or something? Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, those folks also seem to eat these foods. So that must be that, right? But there's, it's probably more complicated than just eggs or no eggs. It's probably like, this is why um, like studies on olive oil, they said, like, look at people who eat olive oil are typically healthier. So then you're the the first thing that you think of is, well, it must be the olive oil. So I'll start eating more olive oil. Uh, But if you look statistically um, at like the average income of people that shop like at Whole Foods or, or people that um, shop at a regular grocery store uh, and they're going to, people of higher incomes tend to shop at places that, and olive oil is more like a, a cultural thing almost. And so this uh, use of this particular oil is, is associated with lots of other things that are important for health. So people like will confound that, they'll mix those things. And then that's why in the nutrition studies, it's like, it's hard to, it's hard to listen to those folks. In my field, every, we all criticize each other's research all the time. It's part of what we do. Uh, and that's why peer reviewed journals are such a big deal because you, your ideas have been criticized very heavily by a bunch of your peers. And they reject articles all the time. So people have like letters of rejection all over their offices back when they were paper. Uh, so there's some vetting process, I guess, is what I'm saying. Uh, I haven't heard anybody. And I've, I talk with folks all over the place from all kinds of different things. And I meet folks that are real skeptical about research stuff. And all of the criticisms that they can hurl about it, like we all know about them. And we talk about them all the time. Uh, and then there's methods to try to address those criticisms that you know, maybe they weren't exposed to, um, but it's a human thing, right? We're a bunch of humans bumbling around, trying to come up with good information, the best that we can to make informed decisions. And even when we have really, really clean, beautiful research, uh, it still doesn't explain the whole picture, mm-hmm. right? Like, and so in quantitative terms, uh, you might explain 10 or uh, 20% of your dependent variable. Well, that's still, you know, 80 or 90% of that, of that thing that you were hoping to change that you didn't explain. So if you do follow the advice of that beautiful, clean research, it's still only going to change the thing in real life a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right. So anyways, it gets, it gets, um, life is messy. Uh, research methods are our attempt to make things simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm a mixed methods person. And so, I use both. And so obviously I have a vision of reality that both methods make good sense to me. Uh, This whole tension between quantitative and qualitative, it's it's slowly kind of going away. It's still there and we still have to talk about it sometimes. Um, But like when I was learning about quantitative and qualitative, we would spend like half the course talking about epistemologies and ontologies and axiologies and all these, all these fancy words for, um, well, I'll tell you what they mean in just a second, but they, uh, uh, all these fancy words that describe philosophical assumptions that we have about the world. And we had, a, and we had to talk about it a lot, like a lot. Um, and it was because it was still like a counter narrative. Uh, it was still marginalized. Uh, there was, that's not real science, you know, that type of deal. Mm-hmm. And quantitative methods were so entrenched. And, and as 
in terms of the production of human knowledge, um, they were so efficient and there was, there was things that, that, that were nice about them. Like you could have a wrong answer, you know, like sometimes if you need to settle arguments, if you have a, you know, if there's six of you around the table talking about something and how, what to do about it. And, uh, one of those folks is just like a knucklehead. Well, then you just kick them out of the meeting. But if everybody there is smart and they all got good ideas, but they conflict sometimes, or they're, they have different implications on, on how to address them. Well then shoot, what do you do then? Mm -hmm. Right. Sometimes you need some method of slicing up information that can say, yes, generally speaking, this person's right. But if, when, and, but these other things, then that guy's right or that lady's right. Mm -hmm. So there's this, uh, um, kind of a, a practicality to having quantitative methods. But in terms of, the, so quantitative method sometimes gets a bad rap uh, because it's associated with this philosophical school. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's called positivism uh, that, that a lot of folks um, have felt, um, have kind of put unnecessary uh, uh, restrictions uh, on what science is and what science can do. But you have to understand it in its context because at the time it was fairly revolutionary and it solved the problem. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at, um, um, at and positivism, like you, if, if, it, it, it bubbles up in different places and, and it takes a while for someone to use that term for it, right? And uh, there's different like champions of thought uh, and then eventually like it becomes like a dominant school of things, but it's hard to, it wasn't like one person walked out and rang a bell and then everyone was like, okay, this is what we think now. It was, it was like a, you know, um, organic thing, but there was like the, the Vienna circle was probably one of the most um, like historically significant points where a bunch of scientists got together and said, this is what we're going to articulate our vision. And the idea uh, uh, was that uh, we could create a social science that was as consistent and reliable as the hard sciences. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that we went about that was quantifying the gee whiz out of everything. Uh, because if it's quantitative, then it's science, right? It's not just that. Uh, it, it's also like, I can send you a data set. And even if you're, if I'm 80 and you're 20 and we don't speak the same languages and we're a hundred years apart, if I, that data set is going to produce the same correlation, regardless, if you run the numbers, it's going to have the correlation point, whatever. And we like that. It gave us a lot of security rather than if we had like interviews and you read it, I was 80, you were, or you were 80 and I was 20 and we were a hundred years apart the opposite direction. We might interpret those things totally differently. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, um, that ambiguity, that uh, subjectivity uh, was something that, it made it less like a hard science. There was less of a definitive answer. Mm -hmm. And so um, with positivism, it's really responding to a, a, a philosophical thought that was around during the day. Uh, it's, it's called nihilism. It's, uh, if, you, if you look it up, it's kind of like this belief that we can't know anything, so why believe anything? And you kind of give up on the pursuit of knowledge. And so this was countering that. It was saying, no, knowledge is possible. Uh, 
but like if you you know if if uh like i don't know if you have a, a particular philosopher that you really are inclined to agree with like if if you're if you i don't know read peter singer or something if you're if you're one of those folks uh it's it is hard uh to delineate whether or not you follow that philosopher because what they're saying is true versus what they're saying you agree with mm. right and 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 so that with uh with and the same thing is true with like religion or other ideologies political ideologies whatever it, it's uh it's you of course will say yeah i think it's true because i agree with it but it that might be true because it, it affirms or flows from lived experiences that are similar to yours mm -hmm. but it's possible that someone with a different lived experiences right would come to different conclusions about the world and they would be equally legitimate at least in terms of their grounding and lived experiences yeah because who determines like what, what true is mm -hmm. so this becomes the responsibility of science mm -hmm. right uh as a society you want to have some uh authority over it and and science didn't require authority from god it didn't require authority from royalty it didn't require like a status authority it was the mechanism right we've mechanized the truth production and uh and so it it solves a, a problem that we have with for disagreements because now we have a method of resolving disagreements that's that it, it could you could win i could i could win right we don't know let's look at the data right it's like gambling <laughs> And, and to the extent that it's objective and, and untainted by human bias and all that stuff, then it should be fair. And so uh, this positivism idea, it, it solves uh, a bunch of problems, but in so doing, um, it also commits, uh, I would say to an emphasis uh, of certain things about reality. And so one of those things, and this is famous from Rene Descartes, uh, is this idea that our subjective knowledge isn't worth a damn. Uh, we can be deceived, we can be convinced, we can be deluded, we can be, we can have not enough information from our physical senses, uh, we can have vantage points, we can be biased, we can be ignorant. There's so many different areas where I can call into question, how do you know what you know? And if I really pushed you, you know that whole Socratic method thing, if I really pushed you, eventually you'd be like, oh, I, don't, I don't really know how I know. Someone told it to me. I, I, I thought it was right. I was convinced. And like, now I say it to people. <laughs> right? So, uh, and you know, if you look at Descartes, he challenges, you know, faith in, in, uh, in, in God. He challenges our, our, our physical senses. He even challenges the fact that we have, like we're, we could be a brain in a jar, you know, like a matrix, like the movie, The Matrix. Uh, and we wouldn't know that we that what we were seeing wasn't real uh, wasn't real. It's similar to like I think Plato's cave allegory. But um, and I think uh, Plato said if we if we grew up and all we saw was if we lived in a cave and all we saw was shadows on a wall, uh, we would think that those shadows were what was real. Um, and uh, and so by relying on quantitative measurement, we're basically saying that. What's really real, not what we think is real, but what's really real is out there someplace. And we need numbers uh, that where it's possible that we can be wrong and uh, to, to help us understand what reality really is. And 
there's a lot of things that like we used to believe uh, that we don't believe anymore as like a, you know, as, as a bunch of humans uh, because research has shed them from us and we were convinced of them before. Yep. Uh, now that emphasis and all the benefits that it brings, it still uh, is, it has limits just like any emphasis would, right? You're, you're, you're putting those limitations on yourself so you can get something that's more pure on one level. Uh, well, during the civil rights in the 60s, you have this upheaval, especially in the United States, that, that throws the world on a curve. And, and we got, you know, basically dissatisfaction uh, across the population on a bunch of different levels. So you get all the civil rights stuff with the black movement, uh, Chicano movement, uh, even the LGBT movement, disabilities movement, red power and American Indian movement. Uh, there's the, uh, the feminist movement, uh, anti-nuclear movement, the anti-Vietnam movement. All of these movements were happening at the same time, widespread dissatisfaction, people protesting. There, it was very hard for the US to continue with its campaigns around the world when inside it was having so much turmoil. And it also made the US look very bad uh, because it was purporting to spread justice and democracy all over the world. And here it is oppressing its own citizens. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 it creates this, um, this conflict uh, that has to be dealt with somehow. And um, the way that it was dealt with was by passing lots of legislation for everybody, for everything. Here, legislation was like, it was like pancake day. It was like, everyone's getting free pancakes. And it was all about uh, um, uh, appeasing all of these angry groups. And so this is why there's uh, like the Civil Rights Act. Uh, this is why like there's ethnic studies and gender studies and uh, in, in our universities, that, that's the, where that was born. Universities were, were trying to give space to these different groups. Um, I, I don't know uh, all of the different legislation for all of the groups, but for indigenous folks in the US, uh, you had the Indian Education Act in 72, the Self-Determination and Education Act 75, the Indigenous Religious Freedoms Act of 78. Uh, so all these things start pouring out uh, in response to all of this upheaval for different groups to make life more fair so that they won't fight against the system as much. That's kind of how it goes. Mm -hmm. Now, as while that's happening, who do we look to to come up with the information for how to deal with this? We look to our scientists, our our, our Social scientists, so psychologists, where are you? Help us out with this. And so, you know, um, we had had a, a pretty decent repository of researchers who are focused on race relations and intergroup relations and power and obedience because of the exodus after World War II. A bunch of researchers that worked there came to the United States looking for exile. So we had folks like Kurt Lewin and, and uh, uh, like studying how like race, and he didn't call it race relations. It was like intergroup relations, I think is what he called it. But we had, we had folks that were, that were, um, that were investigating uh, these types of things already, but then they get supercharged at this time. And one of the like realities that people had to face, and this is where positivism's limit, like becomes like a big pimple is that research is being paid by one paid for by largely a, a few uh, groups 
And, uh, and what you measure, you can analyze and what you analyze, you can talk about. And that this represented a very limited interpretation of reality, especially when these people were doing research on your people, right? So uh, this idea that other groups within society have a different point of view that needed to be grappled with somehow because before it, they were just wrong. Mm -hmm. So indigenous groups didn't have like a legitimate claim to reality. They just had beliefs and mythologies and whatever it is that ignorant, uneducated savages think, right? Same thing with the black population. This is why like racism went hand in hand with this. And so when we're, when we're fighting against uh, racism in the civil rights era, uh, research methods also had to start acknowledging that it's possible that whatever reality is in some objectively true sense out there, outside of our minds, the reality that most of us have to deal with on the day to day are the realities that we believe in in our minds. Mm. And that different people can have different versions of reality and the way that they act react to you depends on that version. And so, you know, for what it was worth, you know, and, and so positivism has kind of loosened its grip a little bit. Now we have post positivism where they basically say that truth, universal truth might not be possible but we can still produce you know, a, a useful um, uh, depiction of reality that we can like build policies off of and plan programs on and all that stuff. But this uh, need uh, for allowing for different views of the world and how those different views are important for explaining our behaviors, our emotions, our thoughts. Well, psychology needed to do something to incorporate that. So one of, one of the things that it did was, um, you know, and this was working with people in other social sciences and, and uh, philosophy too, was articulating this idea of social constructivism. Uh, and that's basically the idea that the world that we live in or the reality that we live in is the reality that you and all of your friends and people in your social network agree is real. Uh, the people in your language, the people in your culture, the people in your nation, the people in your world, um, what they tell you or what we all talk about, what we all kind of pass down, what we all passively create and are informed by at the same time um, is a socially constructed version of the world. And then take that to its, uh, the next level of extreme. And then there's a, another body, another philosophical school that that says there's constructivism. So even within a group, I construct my own reality within that group and I'm negotiating all these symbols and you know, comparing myself on different values and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So qualitative methods become um, like a part of the toolkit. And in, in, in the beginning, uh, all the editors and all the, all the like editors of journals that would accept your publications and all of the committees on grant, uh, grant, uh, grant uh, um, uh, adjudication committees that were reading grant applications, if they saw qualitative research being proposed, they hadn't gotten trained in that. They, they didn't necessarily even endorse that philosophy that, that, and so Lincoln and Guba 
the research kept getting bashed. Where, where's the quality? What is this? What is, where's the quality? It's just a bunch of people talking. Like, who cares? Like, what, who cares what these people think? What really happened? You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, in the seventies, uh, two authors, uh, Lincoln and Guba, they, they articulate um, that this information is high quality information, but it's based off of different philosophical assumptions. Okay. So, we, the fancy words for this is ontologies, which is being. So what reality really is. And we talked about that already. Is it out there objective? Is it something that's, you know, foreign to us that we only have higher or lower credibility perceptions of, but it's out there someplace. That's, a, that's one version of reality. That's one ontology versus is reality going on inside of our brains and we all kind of agree on it. That's another version of what reality is. So that's a, those are two different ontologies. Um, if, if reality is out there and we can't touch it through our perceptions, uh, well then what's your epistemology? Uh, how do you know what you know? Well, I, I know what I know because I've measured it with these scientific methods, these quantitative methods and it told me these ideas are false and these ideas have support. Uh, well, that's, that's one epistemology. And then on the, on the qualitative side, if I say, well, how do I know what people's versions of reality is? Because if, if reality is in our minds, how do I know what people think is true? Well, I asked them, right? So that's how I know how I know, right? That's my epistemology. I, I, I went for that. I wanted to know that subjective reality. That's what I was after. And that's why my method is so valid because I got what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a battle over validity. And, and when we use that word validity, that's one of those $10 words you had mentioned that I threw out there that needed to be unpacked. And, and if um, there's a bunch of different types of, of validity, but they all rely on this essential idea that the thing that you uh, said is happening or the thing that you say that you're measuring really is what you said is happening or really is what's happening and really is uh, what you are measuring. And so we just have different ways of assessing that. Um, and then the last one is the axiology. And axiology is why we do what we do. Uh, and the axiology is that sometimes described as like your values. So why are you researching this thing in that way? Like, why does that, why is that valuable? And so for the, uh, for the, for the positivist, for the, the person who's heavily committed to this, this uh, kind of uh, quantitative approach to accessing reality that's out there, accessing reality at all is a wonderful and beautiful thing, right? We want to know what's real. And so pursuing knowledge for knowledge's sake in a way that produces real knowledge, that's all you need. I mean, that, then we can start having ideas that are not full of baloney. We can start coming up. We can adapt to the world faster because we'll know what is and isn't real. Uh, and so that's, that's an axiology. And then within the qualitative world, right, your axiology um, uh, it, well, it can be for a, a handful of things. Uh, within the accident research approach, right? Your, ax your axiology is to change uh, the world uh, for better. Um, but within qualitative research more generally, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to understand 
like our own human condition. Um, so th there's a, it's not, it's not to understand reality. Reality is trying to understand ourselves. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, there's, there's other schools of thought that are not nearly as huge and influential as those two. So positivism and social constructivism, those are the two big camps. There's smaller camps, um, like myself, I put myself in what they call pragmatism, which I think like, I don't really care as much about this whole fight over reality. Like I know that I have problems in my life and I wanna solve them and if research helps then that I'll use whatever method is available to me. Mm. And then um, there's other um, philosophical schools like transformativism, which is more action-based and even indigenous methods in which they're based off of uh, different ontologies and epistemologies and axiologies. Uh, primarily their ontological um, point of view is based off of relationalism, but that might be for a different podcast. Yeah, yeah that's fascinating. I mean, I, I hope this shows everyone <laughs> listening just how messy research is and it's not just oh, I measured this in this way. So that must mean that it's true. Or this research article says this. So this must, must mean that it's true. My background is in fitness and nutrition. And that is like, oh man, nutrition research. If you go looking for anything, you will find it, right? Like, I don't know, it's a minefield. So I think that that just gives people a bit more context. Like, oh, I read this, like you said about eggs. And then the next week I read this and it's because you're researching one aspect of that thing and you could get a different result depending on if you research a different aspect of that thing. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's limits to it, right? I mean, uh, it, would be, it would be bizarre like, uh, um, it, you, you, I think you could take it to it like an absurdity. Like if you measured role ambiguity at work, let's say, uh, and then you looked at job satisfaction, sometimes you might have just characteristics of your sample that are just weird. Like for whatever reason, that group that you measured that, uh, at that, at that organization, uh, they don't care about ambiguity for whatever reason, their satisfaction is really high. But generally speaking, across most places, you would expect to find that the more that people didn't know what they were doing, uh, the, the less that they would be happy with their job. Mm. Um, and, and so uh, I, I'm biased. I think that the, some of the research that, that we produce in, uh, uh, you know, in, in psych is, a, I don't know how to do nutrition research. I don't know the inside of it. So I don't wanna, I don't wanna say, <laughs> anything critical uh, but I think on, on the psych side we, we try really hard and this is why meta-analysis has really come to the fore I mean maybe 10 years ago 15 years ago uh, you would rarely hear about meta-analyses mm. and now uh, man it, if you show up to the party and you have a lot of meta-analyses in your pocket like you're the you're the baller at that party you know what I mean like in research terms <laughs> Uh, and the reason for that is um, because instead of you collecting data and then analyzing it like everybody else does, everyone else's studies, so 
if I collected data and did a study and you were in someplace else, you collected data on those same two things and you published your study and, and 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 other people were doing that over the course of 50 years. Well, then we could come along, collect all of those studies and that's gonna be our data. Mm. So our data is other people's studies. And so the data that you end up representing it's not a hundred people here or there. It's, you know, a thousand people across 20 different places or 40 different places. Uh, so across time, across space, across settings, across methods, mm -hmm. across different scales, you're seeing what's the relationship between that thing and another thing. And so meta-analyses are very powerful. It's one of the reasons why um, they have so much clout right now, because it helps to control for things that you and I could never control for with our single primary study. Yeah. Can you, so, oh, sorry. I was going to ask, could you talk a little bit about bias? Because when we hear the word bias and you mentioned it a few times, we can have this kind of negative connotation with the word bias, because I think we're looking at it from, and maybe people don't even know they're looking at it from more of a quantitative perspective, whereas in qualitative, bias is actually quite welcome and and is definitely accounted for not that it's not accounted for in quantitative but it's counted for in a different way can you talk about bias from the perspective of both quant and qual yeah yeah um for sure because i wouldn't say that uh qualitative methods invite bias. I, I think that at least, at least um, the, that, so there's something about the phrasing of that that's problematic to me, but, but I'll, I'll come back to it. In the quantitative world, uh, anything that's not reality that's captured in your study is error. Okay. So if your scale doesn't measure the thing, so let's say we're measuring, you know, what's a, a great example, right? Uh, like the big five, the personality inventory that's so many fields of psychology use it. People know it, right? Well, uh, if we didn't want to use um, the regular Big Five inventory, and we wrote our own, and it wasn't—it was kind of junky. Uh, or even if you use the real one, right? It doesn't capture like extroversion or openness to experience. It doesn't go inside your soul and scan you for your level of openness to experience on some biometric and then tell you what you are on something on a neurological level or a spiritual level, right? It just tells you, according to these five questions that we asked you, the way that you scored is higher or lower than the 10,000 other people that have answered that same, those same questions. Yeah. That's, what it's, that's what it's telling us, right? Is this relative distance in your survey answering behavior. And so to the extent that that survey and your survey answering behavior reflect that thing that thing that we're talking about, because we believe that it's real. We know people that are really open to experience and people that aren't. We know people that are really extroverted and people that are really introverted. We know people that are really neurotic or emotionally unstable, like they fluctuate moods very quickly and people that are very consistent, mm -hmm. uh, right? So all these different personality dimensions. Uh, we, we know experientially from people that we live with that those things are, are it's, it's a useful way of characterizing other people. And we know that partly from the fact that those personality dimensions that, that we have in the big five and others like the Hexco um, came from studies of 
lexicons. So it came from human language. So why did we have, uh, what was the content of some of those early studies? It was the words that we used to describe each other that was providing the, the initial input for that, those personality dimensions. We looked at adjectives, right? And so we were already describing each other on these different continuums. We just turned it into a scale. Mm -hmm. Well, that scale is gonna measure it imperfectly and you're gonna answer it imperfectly. And so both of those things are error. If I, if I really encourage you to answer a certain way, right? Then I, now I'm influencing you somehow, or if you think that I want that, like for a job interview, and so you say it, you overinflate it. All of those things are error. Mm -hmm. uh, in the qualitative world, we're not relying on scales like the personality inventory uh, or like the Beck's depression inventory or any in Roseberg's self-esteem inventory. We're not, we're not relying on questionnaires. Uh, we're relying on you to do the interview. And so you're the instrument that's collecting the data, not the scale. You're not watching behaviors and clicking them with a little click track. Uh, you're not like recording how, uh, people's mistakes on a, on a computer or how long their eyes are gazing at something. You're asking them and you're interacting with them. Now, who you are is gonna change the way that that interview goes. Uh, how quick you are, how much you intervene, how little you intervene, the types of questions you ask, and all of those mannerisms or like interpersonal um, etiquettes and even the, the, the ideas that you've been exposed to prior to that interview that you know to ask or not ask, all that stuff is gonna influence what, what happens, what the data that gets collected. So from a positivist standpoint, uh, you've added a whole bunch of your personal reality into this. And so that's error, <laughs> right? Because it, your personal reality is not the phenomenon that I wanted to study. Right. So from a, from a, and this is why qualitative research had to battle this out with the whole philosophical assumptions thing, because uh, by evaluating qualitative data by a positivist standard, of course, it looks like junk. Uh, and so what researchers uh, in, the, in the qualitative world did was uh, they, 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 I don't want to say they spun it um, like just as, as though they framed it differently, but what they did was they, they took um, this human contribution uh, which was inherently bad in this other uh, philosophical camp. And they said, but no, 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 wait a second. We want that human contribution because that helps us uh, to understand what it is uh, that, and we're, or at least we acknowledge it. So this is why like an ethnography and ethnography is one of the our oldest qualitative methods. And they were the ones that developed this idea of reflexivity or positionality. And this is when the researcher, and so admittedly there's gonna be more sensitive, more intuitive, uh, better listening, <laughs> uh, more engaged. And, it might, and you might be more engaged from one day to the next, right? But there's gonna be a, a standard of, of quality, qualitative researchers uh, from really good to really not that good. You know, it's like when you first do your first few interviews and you're bumbling around, right? You, and, and this is why you wanna have a, you know, a good interview script or whatever, because it kind of helps to save you. 
but uh, we we recognize our contribution in, in the creation of knowledge um, because uh, it's true, it's there. Uh, but we also um, we we also I guess allow for um, like the human agency to say that people figure each other out, people communicate, people still convey meaning one way to the other. And let's say I did a horrible interview and the person who was interviewing me, like let me know throughout the interview uh, or they, they, or we had some conflict that brought out a, some particular argument. Well, somebody else could analyze that thing and see that that was there. And if I, and, and uh, depending on how well I knew myself, I could tell you, this is what went wrong and I did this thing. And so, you know, a reasonable person would say, uh, yeah, you had a conflict there. Yeah, I can see that you had that bias there. Yeah, I can see that you didn't understand that person. You misinterpreted them there, right? So it's just like, just the idea that there's a human element doesn't mean that it's not interpretable anymore. Uh, and sometimes uh, who you are actually helps the data to be better. So uh, you showing up into a situation where you don't have any background knowledge, you're gonna make mistakes, you're gonna ask dumb questions, and all of those things are going to make other people explain them to you more explicitly, right? Where they wouldn't explain it maybe in such detail to someone who was from that culture or someone who was from that group because you're supposed to kind of get it already, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes that can have a positive impact on the data. Sometimes people will be more honest with you as an outsider because I can't talk about this with the insiders because they'll all judge me for it. Or I'm gonna tell you about you know, what's really going on. Sometimes people try to you know, trick or fool qualitative researchers, but that happens in surveys too. People lie on surveys all the time. Yeah. I remember in high school, they used to give us these surveys. We just draw a line all the way down, all, all, you know, all threes or whatever, uh, or try to you know, turn it sideways, try to make like a, a diagram or something. Uh, so anyways, qualitative research, uh, I, I don't think that, that you would meet a qualitative research that, that, that says, yeah, I want my results to be biased. But I think that if you asked 100 qualitative researchers, are you concerned uh, that the way that that interview went uh, was unique because you, the interviewer, and whoever you were interviewing had some um, like unique chemistry. Uh, that part um, I don't think would uh, is, is as threatening. And the, the idea is that if I care about the social world and if I care about your version of reality, uh, you know, then I need to connect with you somehow. This is the way that this data gets collected. Um, I can't ask you about your subjective reality with surveys, because I would have to consider every possible thing <laughs> that you would ever think of putting together and then measuring you with it. And, and you know, I mean, I, I, maybe it's possible if you could fill out simultaneously a million surveys every second describing your <laughs> effective state and your intellect and your, like there's, it's just, it's just not possible. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, this idea that, um, well, what if I asked, uh, somebody a question and then I came back next week and I asked them again and they totally changed their story right well if we're thinking the data was supposed to get us what was that what was true 
well, then that would be a real conflict for us, right? Oh, God, it doesn't look like what they told us before was true. But if I want someone's subjective reality, like, let's say, I don't know, I asked you a week ago and, and you described some, I, maybe you're the type of person that uh, is in a relationship and you break up and get back together and break up and get back together, right? All, uh, I don't know if ever, I, wanna, I was almost going to say, we all have a friend like that. I don't know if, if we all do that. Uh, well, if I asked you one week and, you know, you hated him and I asked you the following week and you're in love with him. That's actually more true about what's going on in that person's life than some average rating on relationships or something, right? That, that back and forth, that uh, uh, whatever, whatever is driving, you know, it might not be dysfunctional. What do I know? But them going through those cycles is part of their reality, right? And so anyways, I'm hoping that that, that example, uh, I don't uh, uh I'm not suggesting that your relationship is like that. <laughs> no, no, no. no I, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's not that qualitative methods, welcome bias. I like how you said it just doesn't see it as, as threatening. It it's uh yeah, it, because uh, um, this is how we find out things about one another. Yeah. Uh, we are uh, people's perspectives come together and we resonate with one another uh, and we differ or disagree or fail to resonate with one another. And that calibration process is how we get our information, right? And this is how I, this is how it works. This is how I determine like whether or not I like somebody or whatever, or whether or not I look just up to somebody, whether or not I wanna be like somebody, right? Like I'm calibrating all the time. And so, uh, as qualitative researchers, we try our best to be self-aware. Right. Uh, and so we're trying to make ourselves instruments that are in tuned and sensitive. And it, you know, it's, it's hard. Yeah. And this is what we mean when, when we say reflexivity, right? We're factoring in how we bring that our own biases, our own story, our own subjectivity to the table it, when we're conducting any kind of research. Sure. Yeah. Do, do yeah. you think do you think the process of reflexivity should be included in quantitative methods? Um, I, I, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, I think so. Um, and I'm borrowing a little bit of that wisdom uh, from folks in, who are like the scholars and in indigenous methods, uh, because in indigenous methods, uh, part of um, like my assessment of the quality of your research is me understanding you and why you got into this research and why this project is happening at all. And, and so I think from the in indigenous methods, uh, this idea of, um, I, positionality that uh, it actually helps us to understand where the research is coming from. Now, now we like in the quantitative world, the less human it is, the, the presumably less bias or less error there is. And so we try to distance ourselves from it like at every level. And so why is this research happening? Oh, it's happening because this is cutting edge and, and this is what other theorists have said about it. And um, this is uh, how it's significant socially. 
And then we all like, okay, check, check, check. And then we move on to the methods to see what they're finding out. But what about you? You could have studied a million different things. Why are you studying this thing? Why now? Like, uh, was this like a, like just a convenient opportunity? You thought you could get funding for it? Or is this something that you really care about? Right? Is this something that you're invested in because one of your parents died from this? Like, like what, you know, those things influence what you study and how you study it. And so in, in one sense, uh, I think it could go, you know, overboard. Like I know for myself, um, uh, I have a couple of articles I'm working on right now and each one of them, like we're, we, we've included reflexivity statements and I feel like I'm just introducing myself over and over again and it starts to feel a little redundant. So I, I, can, I can see where it doesn't, if it's just me telling you who I am, then it's probably not useful. But if I'm telling you who I am in relation to the project, uh, then maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't matter, but you, I'm letting you make the choice, right? And uh, uh, so sometimes me being a insider to this thing, so like we got a, this project on indigenous mentorship. Well, not only am I studying indigenous mentorship because I'm trying to create tools to assess mentorship in an indigenous context, but I'm also a part of the indigenous mentorship network <laughs> that had the problem that required the research to be done. Uh, does that give me more of a perspective or am, am a less, you know, am, does it give me more credibility or less credibility? Well, if, if I do that the standard way, I'm just going to hide it from you. <laughs> I'm just not going to tell you at all. So I, I think that there'd be, I think that reflexivity is nice to have. I think that it, it is something that's, um, it's valuable. And there are those of us that care, uh, like why you happen to be doing this research or not. And, you know, uh, there's going to be a bunch of self kind of self-presentation bias. I don't think anyone's going to say, well, like, I don't care about this population or the cause. I'm just doing this because it's a job, you know, but it, <laughs> if they did that though, you know, I mean, I feel like I, I still would want to know, but there are times where uh, people hide behind the curtain. And I think that that's used inappropriately. So I could publish a study and pretend to be an objective scientist and still be getting kickbacks from the pharmaceutical company that's funded me to do that research. And I'm just gonna not mention it because that makes my study less bias. It's like, come on, yeah. not mentioning it doesn't get rid of the bias. Uh, and so, you know, in the, I do, I, I mean, like I, I wouldn't wanna like be the, the person that, that creates the policy that regulates it or something, but, but I, I would like to see it as a, a practice that increases. So kind of to finish up, when people are looking at research, what, what are some of the things that they should be looking at to see if something is valid or true or how do, how do you disseminate? Mm -hmm. Oh man, that's a, oh, that's a huge question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, and so as a, as a, as a researcher, um, you know, I, I, I kind of skip the introduction section and I skip the discussion section <laughs> and I just read the method section. Uh, and there's, and this is, I, I, I hate to, um, to say that uh, it's like a specialist field, but it is kind of a specialist field. When when you when you you're you look for certain indicators you cert, you look for certain um, uh, 
characteristics to be present are not present there, mm -hmm. right? And so different methods have different quality control assurance, like, uh, I don't wanna say tests, but uh, they have different methods of assessing or, or fact-checking or, or ensuring. So like in, um, in qualitative research, uh, well, what am I arguing that I'm doing? I'm capturing somebody's subjective reality, right? So like in the, in the health psychology world, uh, let's say that, that uh, we wanna assess how people, their hospital experience after they've had some kind of invasive surgery, right? Uh, we don't want, we've gotten complaints or something and like that people get treated bad. Like they, they got the surgery and then they're just like sent out uh, and they don't feel cared for and they're still in pain or whatever. So we, we, we say, well, let's interview them, ask them what they would like better. What's the, what's the worst part of it? Is it because you're in pain that just anything sucks? Like what's going on? Mm -hmm. So then we went and we interviewed a whole bunch of those people. And then I came back to you and you worked on the health board. And I said, this is what people are experiencing. That's my claim, right? That I've captured that subjective reality. Well, you're relying on me to have interviewed them correctly and uh, to have captured everything with my themes or, or whatever, however I analyzed it, you're relying on me for that. Well, if I told you after I created my themes, I went back to the people that I interviewed the first time and I checked with them and I showed them the themes and I said, did I leave anything out? Did I misunderstand you? Right? Do you feel like your point of view is, re is reflected in the way that I summarized it? And if they said, yeah, I could not believe them, but, but that's pretty good evidence that like my interpretation was good. And if they said, oh, that's pretty good, but you missed this thing or you missed that thing, right? So that's a quality assurance. If I said that I'm capturing someone's perspective, their subjective reality, and then I went back to them and I asked them, did this reflect your subjective reality? And they said, yeah, uh, well, that, that's a quality control check. So like we call those member check-ins. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's one way um, of like, it's, it's just evidence that helps to support my claim. When um, I think that sometimes when we think about, you know, that whole true or false thing, uh, it, I think it's, it's more appropriate to think about research as like a, like a legal case, like guilty or innocent, like you're gonna accumulate a lot of evidence. Like sometimes it's a slam dunk, you have the confession, you have the tape, but sometimes you have to compile a whole bunch of circumstantial evidence. And that's kind of what we're doing in research. We're, we're creating a portfolio of evidence so that we can come to some reasonable conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, in the, uh, another, another thing that we do in qualitative uh, research, so there, there's different quality controls to assess for different um, types of mistakes. Uh, in the qualitative course that I teach in UFC, um, I, I ask people uh, to create a table where they show me how often a certain theme or a certain code appears. But then I also have a, a column for how many participants in that sample said it. And the reason why we're, we do that is because that's a, a quality control for overrepresentation. Because sometimes you'll get one participant that just talks about something a whole lot. And so it shows up a lot. And so if you're just looking at frequencies, then this thing is the most important thing, but it wasn't for most people. So, you know, uh, that's a, 
that those frequency tables, that's, that's a quality control check. Um, there's a thing called negative case analysis, um, where if, if you come up with five themes and you say, everybody talked about these five things, everybody talked about those things. Well, some people didn't talk about those things. Okay. So, um, but this is still generally true. Yeah. Is there anybody that it's not true for? So this negative case analysis is a way that we can acknowledge contradiction. Mm. Right? I said that everybody experiences this, but here's one case where the person said the opposite story. Right. Right? Everyone said that having supportive parents was beneficial, but this one person actually said that their parents hassled them all the time and that helped motivate them, right? Well, isn't that part, even if it's not the, the you know, the totality of, of human experience, isn't it important that there's that negative case study there? Yeah, it is, right? So there's, there's different um, methods for quality assurance and um, uh, having any of them there is good, but it's like money, right? So the more money that you have, the, the better that it is. And, you know, that's the same thing that like journal editors and stuff look for too. They're saying like, uh, you, 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 you distilled some information somehow and that's cool. Um, did you take any efforts to ensure uh, quality? And uh, th there's just so many of them. It's like in the quantitative world, uh, a lot of it because we're relying on scales, come back to our measurement and uh, our measurement tools, you know, so what's the reliability on there? You know, are all the items moving together like you would expect? If all the items are measuring the same thing, shouldn't they all move up and down together? If somebody scores a five on one, shouldn't they score high scores on all the other ones? If all of them are really asking about a similar thing, if somebody puts a, a low score and then a high score and then a low score and then a high score and everybody does that, aren't those items confused? I mean, maybe they're reverse coders. Mm. Right, so that there's, there's just a, the, the idea for validity, for quality assurance, um, you know, I mean, I would say if you can find somebody that's hip with that, uh, you know, this is, this is partly why science has a, a problematic relationship with uh, democratic methods, like dem democracy, because scientists are not elected, it's skill-based. And so uh, that's why we don't say, well, what's the best practices? Science knows the best practices. Let's put scientists in charge of the government uh, <clears throat> because you know, there's, no, there's no quality control for representation, how well they represent anything. They're just experts at this knowledge production mechanism. Mm. And science is, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a hard, um, qualitative is, it's a, like the learning curve is, is like this. It's like it, um, you you can get, but quantitative, it's like a, a, a sharp a sharp curve, a sharp spike. Mm -hmm. So the, the learning curve is a little bit different. You can learn qualitative and become confident uh, at, a, at a, a base set of skills more quickly than you can with quant. Um, but the time that you save in learning it, you end up spending that later in the analysis and the transcription and all that stuff because the qualitative takes longer uh, in some respects than, than quantitative. Uh, once the data is in hand, it takes longer. It does take a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> transcribing, any uh, researchers, psychology students that have done transcribing, you're like, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> 
like in the quantitative world, you know, you look for the meta-analyses. That's our answer right now. You know, if you want to look at, you know, if, if there's an area of something that you want to know about and there's no meta-analysis, all right, well, then you start looking for, in the quantitative world, start looking for validated scales, scales that have good evidence for validity, like the, um, either their factor structure is, like the, the model fit is very high, or the things that it predicts or is related to is exactly the things that it should predict and be related to if it measures what it, you say that it's measuring. Mm-hmm. You should look for large sample sizes. You should look for control groups. You should look for, there's, there's, there's like a, lots of standards that are very cleanly delineated in the quantitative world for assessing quality. And then in the qualitative world, there's the member check-ins, there's the external auditors, there's the frequency tables, there's lots of different uh, methods. So it's hard to say in one answer, what should you look for, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the take home is there is no one best method for conducting research. It's, it's going to be dependent on what you're researching. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay. I have, I've been doing this thing over the last few episodes. I have fun questions. All right. All right. So the first one is if you were stranded on a desert Island and can only choose one food to eat for the rest of your life, what would it be? Corn dogs. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. What's the best meal you've ever eaten in your entire life? Oh, man. Oh, man. That's a hard one. The best meal, like health wise? Just what, whatever, however you want to answer that question. Best meal. Uh-huh. Oh, man. You know, when, uh, uh, when you ask your computer something and it freezes because it's like, <laughs> <laughs> man, I've had so many awesome meals and and uh, and and they're awesome for so many different reasons. Uh, uh, I, I'll uh, I'll give you I'll give you a, a couple. Okay, uh, there was a uh, I would say there was this best meal uh, that uh, that we had. Um, uh, my dad had this apartment and. Uh, in uh, Northridge and it was in the kind of the valley of, the, of uh, Los Angeles area. And um, we used to go out to, to eat on Fridays and, um, you know, it was just hard times. And everybody was short on money. And I told him, I said, listen, I can't go out to eat anymore because there was a little while where, where he was making big bucks. And then that, that time ended. I told him, listen, man, you can't keep living like that. Let's just start making dinner at the house um, uh, and we'll invite everybody over and we'll feed everybody, you know, and that'll be like our, our replacement for, uh, you know, going out or whatever. And so there was this one time where we said, I had this, like this little barbecue and we had all this Buffalo meat. We had a, uh, my dad's friend had a, a ranch and they w- would, uh, take out so many buffaloes of the population and sell the meat. And he would donate some to my dad's nonprofit so that we could sell it at our powwows. And sometimes we'd have Buffalo meat left over. So I said, all right, look, we're going to have Buffalo burgers. And, and uh, uh, we set up this little tiny barbecue and we just cooked. It was a little, a real small barbecue. It was like, and so it took forever. And we just kept on just cooked barbecue uh, hamburgers all night. And uh, it was an apartment. So we didn't have like a yard or nothing. And so we were just like, there was a sliding glass door. And we just walked outside and put the barbecue there and just cooked. And so there's all these neighborhood kids. Uh, I don't know, like they're, 
didn't have any dinner or something or i don't know maybe they did and they didn't but they all came over and they're like oh can can we have a hamburger too can we have a hamburger too so we said yeah yeah let, let us feed our our uh, older folks first and then we'll get to you and we just fed a whole bunch of kids that night like all these kids came out uh, and i i uh i think that i think i don't think anybody got sick or anything i think it was just a good time everyone came and, and chomped uh, these buffalo burgers so that was a real good meal um uh there was this other time uh where me and uh uh this is uh, my wife before we went uh before we uh, had kids we were living still in portland oregon and uh there was this uh so i love camping and there was a period in my life where all of my camping stuff was in the back of my truck all the time and i, I might be like on friday i'd be driving home from work and be like nah and i would just go camp someplace and it's been a long time since I've been able to do that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, in graduate school, there wasn't a whole lot of pen for stuff. And there was this, uh, there was this one time where, uh, uh, this is before we were, uh, you know, uh, parents and everything, but she, uh, she said, she comes home and she goes, let's go camping. Like, like right now, let's just do an impromptu trip. And I was like, I'm on it. So we, like, we went, we got all our stuff packed and we just drove and, um, uh, we hadn't really had time to like do a shopping list or whatever. And we stopped at this really little like convenience store in the middle of nowhere. And we just bought all these ingredients that whatever they had there, you know, the produce section was like as long as a, it was like four feet by two feet, real small, there hardly anything there. And we made these gigantic breakfast sandwiches. It was like this like pizza bread bagel. Uh, and it had like avocado and bacon and egg and cheese. I mean, it was just this decadent thing. It was probably, you know, 1200 calories or something, <laughs> but it was such a good meal. We took a picture of it. The thing was monstrous. Um, and then uh, there was another meal. Uh, I went back to Portland uh, after we moved. I moved to Arizona and then, uh, and then we came up here to Canada, up to uh, Calgary. And uh, I still work in Portland, Oregon sometimes. And I flew down there and my friend took me out to get chicken wings. And uh, I ordered when he was in the restroom. And when he came back, uh, I had mistakenly ordered like the hottest wings on the menu. And they were super hot. Like I haven't eaten, and I love hot wings. And I eat spicy wings all the time, but these were so hot. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> when he came back, we started eating them and like my ears started ringing and like my vision went all blurry. And I, uh, it was just painful. And, and like, I remember that meal like I'll remember it forever. <laughs> so that's three of them. I mean, uh, what's your favorite place that you've ever traveled? Oh, um, I haven't been very many places. Uh, I haven't been very many places. I'm a little bit of a, of like a homebody kind of local guy, uh, uh, because of academia, I've gotten to go a bunch of different places. And, and so there is, like a little bit of, you know, going places that are like tropical or exotic that, that are always going to compete because they're so different and so like temporary and so awesome. Um, I went to Puerto Rico once. It was amazing. I went to New Zealand once. It was amazing. I went to Hawaii once and uh, uh, Belize once. Uh, all those times were amazing. I, lo I love how you're like, I haven't traveled much. I just went to those, Belize. Those are the four... Those are the four like times I've been off the continent, I guess. Uh, but the places that I've lived, Oregon, um, Arizona, um, 
even Calgary, falling in love with Calgary, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I really like the places that, that I get to exist in, in, uh, every, every place has its own, like, a uh, energy and, uh, it might take a little while, uh, for you to, uh, get tuned in. Uh, but once you do, you know, it's like, you, you can't help but feel connected to that place. Mm-hmm. Last question. Mm. What is your most memorable epic fail? It could be like in a gym. It could be like doing research, like whatever. Epic fail. Epic fail. Uh, Oh man. Epic fails, huh? The most epic? (laughs) Or or just like an epic fail. (laughs) You ask some some hard questions. I know. (laughs) (laughs) uh epic fails i feel like uh uh my mind immediately goes to accidents that i've had uh where i got like physically hurt but they weren't very epic you know like i I, when i I talk with other people who do much more extreme things uh than i do uh i feel like calling them epic is not the right not the right label hey um Oh, I got an epic one for you. That time I went to Hawaii, uh, me and Asia, we went, uh, um, uh, we had a conference there. So we went for the conference and um, uh, <laughs> uh, we stayed for a week after the conference, right? Cause like, hey, we're here for the conference anyways, the same money for the plane ticket if you stay for two days and if you stay for five days or whatever. So we stayed, we rented this little Airbnb and uh, we took the rental car and we started visiting these little beaches all up and down North shore. So uh, uh, we go to this little beach, throw our blanket down, run out to the to the water, and we're swimming around. And uh, I come back, and I'm looking at uh, all of our stuff. And uh, I didn't empty my pockets before I went to the water, and um, I couldn't find our car keys, and uh, I lost them. I lost them in the ocean. And uh, I looked for a long time before I told her because I thought for sure I could, I thought I'm going to find these shiny keys someplace and then no one has to know and it'll be all right. Uh, and I totally uh, like locked us out of our car and, you know, we didn't, we were, <laughs> didn't have anything at our disposal. We ended up, this really cool uh, tr- tow truck guy ended up taking us back. Um, but uh, uh, man, that was an epic fail. While I was looking for them, it cost us like a bunch of money to get like the replacement keys done and everything. It was horrible. Uh, while I was looking for the keys though, there was this one time and I'm waiting out there for, you know, forever, uh, looking for these stupid keys and, uh, the, the waves like smashed away for just a moment. And there was like this giant sea turtle, like really big, like maybe four feet, uh, uh, long, you know, just, uh, uh just the shell, not the head and tail is longer than that, but it's huge. And I got to be real close to him, look at him just for a little bit. But I'll tell you what made that uh, key fail so epic. And, and this was a really irritating thing that I still haven't lived down. Uh, was it's because the, those swimming trunks had this little key pocket and it like it, it didn't hold the keys very well, right? That it would always flop and, and, and the keys would fall out if you were swimming. And the reason why I knew that, the reason why I knew better, the reason why I shouldn't have gone into that ocean with those keys and those shorts was because like, six or seven years prior to that 
uh, I did the same thing in uh, uh, Lake Nascimento in Northern California. Uh, we went camping, I went swimming, lost my trek keys in a, in a lake. And so it was the second time, second time that those shorts did that to me. Uh, I wasn't in Hawaii, right? I was in Northern California, so, but I had to have a friend drive six hours and bring me my first set of keys. I felt like such a jerk. <laughs> that, that, I feel like that, that one was, that was a fail. Double epic fail. What is one piece of advice you can leave our listeners with when it comes to research? That's the end of the fun questions. Uh -huh. um, two things. Uh, one, uh, you gotta love, you gotta fall in love with the research. Mm. Uh, I, um, uh, there's this guy, um, Eddie Bravo, he uh, innovated uh, jujitsu uh, to cater to UFC fighting and MMA fighting. And uh, I listened to him on this one interview and he said, oh, if you're a UFC fighter, you have to fall in love with jujitsu. You have to fall in love with it. Cause he was saying, it's like, it's not enough just to like to like be timidly related to it or just do it a little bit. Like you gotta love it. You gotta, you gotta really like get your head into it. And I think that you have to do that with research. Um, if, uh, if you just do it a little bit, uh, then it's, an, it's like annoying and it's, it seems tedious. And it, but if, if you're doing, if, if you, that's why in, in my class, everyone writes their own research questions. Like I have to, I, I have extra work having to apply for ethics to get approval for us to do that in, in our class. Mm. Um, other classes, um, even our class before I got here, everyone would just interview each other and it would be like a scripted set of questions, right? And the reason why we do that is because I want the questions to be personal. I want you to ask a question about something that you care about. And sometimes people ask things that they just treat it like an assignment, but sometimes people ask some real, some real deep questions, some real hard questions, you know, and when you're invested in the process, it's different. Mm. Uh, and so the, you know, the other thing is, is, um, you know, you don't learn how to do research uh, without doing it. Uh, you have to do it. It's like it's like any other hands-on skill, I guess. Uh, and so, um, my my second advice is, if you're going to do it, uh, do it with intentionality. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we talked about, uh, and I think you said it earlier really well, is that uh, there's not a wrong method. It it's a matter of fit. And so. Uh, like, like I mentioned, research is a universe, uh, not a subfield. So there's methods that are like in a solar system, they're all methods, but they're, they're separate planets or whatever. And so you, you spend time on a particular planet, you get good at that one method. Um, and you realize that within each method, there's a bunch of decisions that you can go one way or the other way. And, and there isn't a perfect decision. Every one of them will limit you somehow. And so if you're going to, if you're going to pay the cost, if you're going to accept that limit, you want to get the, the, the pro too, um, not just the con, you want the, the good thing. And if you're going to make 10 decisions or 20 decisions, you want them all to err in the same direction, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, you, you want the pros to all go in the same direction so that when you are doing a research project from beginning to end, it should tie together like a, like a, like you're sewing 
um, or weaving something. It should like they should they everything should should be cohesive. You you should be doing it with intentionality. Should, if you just kind of throw your hands up and ah, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I'll do a little bit of this and a little bit of this and end up with some Frankenstein method at the end. And it's hard to know, you know, that when you had asked earlier about quality, that's one of the ways that I like that I assess quality is, is how well are all of these things moving together with the same intention. And, it, and if it's disjointed, then it'll be out of place. There'll be something like, well, why did you do that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and so different decisions, you know, they partly depend on the philosophical assumptions we had talked about earlier. And that's why I think that the reflexivity thing is useful. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Well, thank mm-hmm. you so much for coming on the show. That was oh, a, yeah. I hope it was lot. all right. Yeah, no, it's great. It's a lot to unpack. Um, but I think it does give a broader picture into the world of research and how complicated and fantastic and um, deeply complex it can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, and it is all those things. It can yeah. also be the opposite too, right? It can also be lame and boring and useless and all that stuff yeah (laughs) that's why we have a responsibility in the matter yeah well thank you so much for joining me um are you on social media can people Uh, find you anywhere i'm on linkedin Mm -hmm. um that's really the only social media i have i also have a website that we are that but that's technically my labs website it's not mine Okay. And it's, um, uh, I, I can uh, send it to you. I think it's, it's, it's one of those Wix sites, you know, those free ones. Yeah. Um, Just if people want to access more about what you do or look at some of your research work, can our listeners find you? Yeah. And so it's just my name, Adam Murray, um, and then period, and wixsite.com slash website. Uh, or you can look me up on uh, LinkedIn. I have, uh, I, I don't check it super regularly. I, uh, uh, but, but you can see that the research that my lab is doing through the Wix site, uh, or you can see um, like my profile or whatever on that on LinkedIn, or you can look through the university and try to hit me up through there. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you again and have a great day. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for tuning into today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion and gained better insight into how you can be the healthiest version of yourself that you can be. Don't forget to subscribe to my channel on iTunes and please leave me a review so we can get this message of better health out there. Have a great day and remember, you are powerful over your health.